Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 212 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, we're bringing you a series of fresh episodes over this early window in September. And uh, today I am so excited to bring you Erwin McManus. Uh, Erwin and I met backstage at an event we both were part of in uh, Charlotte, actually. So thank you to Elevation Church and Pushpay for creating the space and the room for this interview to happen. But we sat down at the end of the day backstage and had this amazing wide-ranging conversation. So this came on the heels of the Global Leadership Summit, where he had uh, pretty much just brought down the house. And uh, we went all over the place in this conversation. We talked about his childhood, uh, parts of his story I didn't know about, how he got over this need for approval. Uh, And then we talked a lot about pride, actually, which is something I address in my brand new book, which just released yesterday, actually, called Didn't See It Coming. And got into this really interesting space where we probably spent too much time talking about narcissism. Um, Irwin has done some research in that because he sees it as so prevalent, not just in the corporate world, but, but sadly in the church world. And so, you know, these are my favorite conversations. Backstage, unscripted, the backstory behind, you know, the books and the messages and, and the leaders that we follow. Irwin would describe himself, and so would many, as not only an author, but a futurist, a filmmaker, a designer. He's also the pastor of Mosaic Church in Los Angeles, and they have an incredible impact. I've talked to a number of people who you would never, ever think would be in church who go to Mosaic and who now have a relationship with Christ, which is really exciting. So hope you're going to enjoy this. And uh, yeah, we're doing this to sort of go behind the scenes and ask leaders like Irwin, and tomorrow we'll be back with Levi and Jenny Lusco about what they didn't see coming in leadership. That's the title of my brand new book. It is available today everywhere books are sold. You can get uh, more information at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. And it really deals with the seven big issues in life that kind of everybody experiences, but nobody expects. Things like cynicism and burnout and pride and disconnectedness. Like what is technology doing to us? And why is it that everybody is so connected, but we feel so alone? Or emptiness, you know, what happens when all your dreams come true? Those are the soft issues that I think not only take leaders out. I mean, I I deal with moral compromise in the book and how that happens. Not just in the big categories that make you lose your job, but like the little things that'll honestly just cap your leadership and turn you into a fraction of the person or the leader that you might have been. So it's all those soft issues that I deal with in Didn't See It Coming. I would love for you to check it out. You can go to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com, get all kinds of information. We have some uh, fun stuff on that webpage too, including a cynicism test that we will link to where you can say, huh, how cynical am I? And so we'll kind of walk you through that. Anyway, we're bringing you these bonus episodes in celebration of the release of Didn't See It Coming. It's available everywhere books are sold, or you can just go to didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. And without further ado, here is my fascinating and freewheeling conversation backstage with Erwin McManus. Well, it's good to be backstage with Erwin McManus. Erwin, it's nice to actually have this conversation face-to-face this time. Carrie, it's good to see you. It's good to be yeah. with you. Yeah, so, um, you know, as, as we're thinking about things in leadership and life that leaders didn't see coming, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sure your entire life has been very predictable. Um, nothing caught you off guard or by surprise. Is there anything like when you think back over your time in ministry or even where you are in life right now that you would say, yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that coming? I guess I would be one of those people who say I didn't see almost anything coming. <laughs> yeah. I used to say yeah. that there are three different kinds of leaders. One is like an eagle um, who flies high and sees with great vision. Another one's like a hawk. They're super focused. They see the hamster running through the field and they go after it. And I'm like a bat. And, uh, <laughs> so you can't see. And um, I'm flying blind in the dark, screaming my guts out and moving the moment the radar tells me I'm about to hit the wall. So I don't think I've been surprised by 
things that were unexpected because I expected the unexpected in my life, if that makes sense. Huh. Why does it not throw you for a loop? I mean, I, I don't see you as a control freak. Maybe I just don't know you well enough. But a lot of leaders would say, yeah, I'm totally a control freak. Why, like, does it scare you not to know what's ahead or? I would say I'm the exact opposite of a control freak. Yeah. I, I'm just not a person that wants to waste my energy trying to control things that are out of my control. I, I think that um, it's a much better way to live to understand what you can control, take mastery of those areas of your life, and then just allow life to, uh, to come at you. Because um, I think too many of us try to be planned and, and we don't spend enough time being prepared. Hmm. I think the difference for me is I think I'm, I live my life prepared and I know I, that I can't really plan the future. What's the difference in your mind? That, that's a really interesting distinction between prepared and planned. Yeah, uh, a person who plans their life out is they, they schedule it all out. This is where they're going to college. This is what their degree is going to be. This is, you know, who they're going to marry. I mean, they have it all mapped out. This is what their job looks like. This is what their future looks like. Uh, but, um, but they don't necessarily prepare by developing the competencies to be able to adjust to whatever, um, whatever life has for them. My my grandfather taught me how to play chess when I was around three years old, and and he never let me have a move. He made me earn every single move. So I was probably seven before I ever got past 10 moves. And, <laughs> you know, and I would cry nice every grandfather. time. Yeah. Oh, he was brutal. And he would always say to me, when you earn a move, you can have a move. So I understood very, very early in my life that, um, that the space that you're going to take uh, isn't given to you. You have to earn it. You have to think it through that every decision I made actually had consequence or benefit. And so it's a huge part of preparation is knowing that your choices um, are mostly made ahead of the action. Because life comes at us really, really fast and hard. And so I always tell people, look, there are choices you make that allow you to tie the process, but most of your choices are made by your character. Because when life comes at you fast, you respond quickly, and those responses are actually reflective of your character. So the first choice you make is the character that you choose, the person you become. And that's how you prepare. It's actually one of the things we cover and didn't see it coming in the book is character. You know, yeah. work twice as hard on your character as you do on your competency. Mm-hmm. How have you done that? How have you really prepared your character for whatever life brings? I, I think it's a different journey for different people. Yeah. And uh, because really, for me, a huge part of my character journey happened long before I met Christ. And I know I'm supposed to say that. Um, I was inherently corrupt. And then you were a terrible person, and- <laughs> gave your life to Jesus, and now you're perfect. But I grew up in a really um, corrupt, dysfunctional, broken world. And early on, I mean, I was probably 10 years old when I made a decision. I would not lie. Wow. I, mean, I would just live with whatever consequences the truth brought to me. And it brought me a lot of consequences. And um, I made a decision to be uh, sexually moral. So I, I never had sex with anyone. And, um, and I became a follower of Christ at 20, and I— um, made that decision as an unbeliever. Why did you make those decisions when you were so young? You know, it's odd because I didn't. I grew up in a pretty like pagan, hedonistic home. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. I didn't have a moral compass telling me this is the way you should live. In fact, I had other people telling me that it was a waste of my life that I was making foolish decisions, and there was, uh, I think, inside of me this uh, desire to rise above all the darkness and all the brokenness and all the dysfunction um, of the world in which I lived. And um, I didn't know if I could do it, but I aspired to be noble. I aspired to be truthful. I aspired to be a heroic and be a person of integrity. And and um, so I developed a really high consciousness. And um, I mean, I just felt guilty for anything I did wrong. And, and, um, and, and you know, and, and I think a huge part of what drove me to Jesus was that I knew I couldn't live up to the ideals that I longed to live up to. Hmm. And, and that's why for me, sometimes our theology didn't really match when it says, no, you can't, you can't actually want what's good. And I'm like, no, what drove me to Jesus was I longed to be good and couldn't fulfill that completely. And I felt, um, how could I, I mean, I was 11, 12 years old when I wanted to end poverty, when I wanted to you know, be a part of ending injustice. And I, this didn't come from religion. It didn't come from a faith background. But I kept thinking, how can I save the world if I can't even save myself? How can I fix the world if I can't fix me? And, and, uh, and so that's part of what drove me. That's incredible. You said lying cost you. A lot, or telling the truth cost you a it lot. Did. 
Can you give us some examples? Yeah, just a, a real practical example is, yeah. you know, um, I had a brother and two sisters. And, oh. you know, and uh, my brother and I were in the same grade, even though he was a year and a half older than me. And um, when something would go wrong, when something would get broken in the house or something was done wrong, my mom would come home from work and say, who did this? And, of course, everyone would say, not me, not me, not me, not me. And, um, and whenever I would say, if it wasn't me and I said, not me, my mom would just say, you're all lying, and then spank us all, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I, something inside of me said, I would rather be punished for something I didn't do than be called a liar. So like years later, my mom told me, I always punished you because everyone else said it wasn't them, and then you wouldn't say anything. And because to say it wasn't me just made me a part of everyone else living in denial. Hmm. And so I decided to just be better to not do that. So it cost me. I got I get, I, I took the blame for a lot of things I didn't do, and 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 you know and, and that was a part of like the internal narrative realizing telling the truth isn't always um, the best road forward if you're looking at personal benefit. Hmm. I mean you know we like to say telling the truth always you know is better for you, but you know life seems to prove the other. Yeah. <laughs> but it but it does something. It corrupts your soul and. And I felt it inside of me. And uh, I watched people lie and how much pain it caused. I watched how much pain it caused me. Um, I watched people who would lie even when the truth was actually more beneficial because they just mm. developed a, a lifetime and a pattern of deceit. And I just decided, you know, that wasn't the path I wanted for my life. And you, those things drove me to Jesus. Yeah. That's an unusual testimony, for sure. Not every story goes that way. You were uh, just last week uh, at the time that we're sitting down to record this in probably one of the most difficult situations I think anyone in, you know, the church in our lifetime Mm -hmm. could imagine walking into. You were at Willow Creek at the Global Leadership Summit. I was. I don't want to say a whole lot about what happened. I think most of the listeners would know. And it's just, it's heartbreaking on about a thousand different levels. Mm you know, for the victims, for Bill, for the elders, for the staff, for Steve and Heather and 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 the thousands of people, tens of thousands who call Willow home, mm-hmm. and for so many church leaders. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, the story will continue to unfold over the next few years. But, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's a heartbreaking tale of values that were compromised at whatever level. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about, you know, what it was like for you to walk into that situation and speak to people after, you know, that level of compromise had happened and what you were feeling in the room and how you addressed it? I mean, your talk got a standing ovation mm-hmm. at the summit. And uh, I, I I, mean, it's just— there How was... did you know that? Were you there? <laughs> <laughs> I heard. Somebody okay. told me. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, I, I, I would just love for you to reflect on that. I, well, part of it for me was the process before. Hmm. Uh, hearing about all that was going on, realizing it was going to affect the summit, um, dealing with the reality that my own reputation would be affected by being present. Yes. And, you you received quite a bit of pressure not to go. Yeah. And I live in L.A. And, of course, L.A. is really, I think, like the epicenter of the Me Too movement. And, yeah. And I need to be really aware of that. And that's affected so many people. And, um, but my wife was like, of course you're going. This <laughs> is what you do. You know, there's really no question. Um, because my life journey has been to stand in the hardest moments. And, and one of the things that really struck me is because about, I think, five presenters withdrew from the conference. And uh, one of the differences for me was I don't see myself as a public speaker. And I think if you're a public speaker, you say yes to an audience because it benefits your career. Hmm. And, um, you know, maybe it's old language, but I, I actually feel like my, my role in life is more prophetic. Hmm. And I'm not there because the platform builds my career. I'm there because I'm supposed to say something to the person who's there listening. And so the fact that the environment became more difficult, more complex, more painful, it didn't affect whether I should be there or not. Yeah. It affected the texture and layers of what I needed to say. It made more sense to me for why I was there. What was the mood of the attenders who were there? I mean, 
I wanted to find some way to thank all the volunteers at Willow Creek. Hmm. My wife's like, is there any way you can thank them? I go, well, I, I don't really have that, that platform. To yeah, yeah, them. yeah. But they served. They were so kind, so loving, so optimistic. You could feel the layer of pain and disappointment underneath the surface. Hmm. Um, they didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And a lot of times we want to punish the people who didn't do anything wrong because we can't punish the person who did something wrong. And and I could feel that heartache. Yeah, trust is not, it's not a crime. You know, because um, whatever proves to be true or whatever, however else this develops, um, people were not criminal to trust their pastor. Hmm. And if anything, they were betrayed. Yeah. And they're not the betrayers. And I wanted to go and say, hey, you know, um, we're for you. Hmm. And there's a future for you. There's healing through this. And um, there's restoration and, and hope. And um, I, so I, I just felt like those, all those volunteers, all those people who work business jobs and go to work every day and volunteer endless hours for the church, all those people who have been tithing and giving for decades at Willow Creek, I wanted them to know all their effort has not been wasted. Yeah. You know, that, that all that hasn't been discounted. What they did to serve people, it still matters and it's still valued. Um, you know, just because if you or I mess up, it doesn't mean everyone who trusted us is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I've had that conversation with a few people, you know, over the last year or so about places. And unfortunately, we've had way too many stories of— yeah leaders who have fallen in moral compromise, et cetera. But, you know, it, it, I remember talking to one leader and I just said, does that mean that your time at this church, and this wasn't anybody who, who had a moral failure, but like was all in vain. Like, did any of this stuff count? Like, were we all <laughs> deceived, right? What's yeah. your take on that? I think that we have a hard time recognizing that we're all broken. Mm. And that the, the, the spectrum really isn't how broken or unbroken we are. It's how transparent and untransparent we are. Yeah. You know, and are we authentic and honest and real and, trans and, uh, and connected to our own selves? You know, and um, it's amazing how forgiving people are when you own your stuff. Yeah. It's amazing how that stuff will drown you if you don't own it. What, what are some things that, you know, publicly or privately to your team or, or the people close to you, you've looked back and, like, you've had to own? You're like, you know, in leadership, we all make mistakes. Yeah, I just think that if you lead from your weaknesses and from your brokenness, you, you actually are really incredibly safe. Mm. If, you're, um, if you're trying to lead from a perception of perfection— you're incredibly fragile. So walk us through what that looks like for you. Yeah. You know, I just, I mean, I named the church mosaic because a mosaic is an art form of broken and fragmented pieces that are brought together by an artist to create something beautiful, especially when light strikes through it. So I started the church saying, look, we're all broken and fragmented people. Mm. And that God brings together to create something beautiful, especially when the light strikes through us. So like no one at mosaic would go, oh my gosh, everyone's broken or oh my gosh, everyone's imperfect. Oh my gosh, everyone's messed up. Um, like, I started this thing messed up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. You know, and, um, but I also like on a, on a neurological level, I have what's called uh, high impulse control. And it's like mapped out at pretty much like the highest level. And so I just don't, I'm not a person who like loses my temper or a person who uh, does something impetuous and goes, oh, I'm so sorry. And I, um, really, you say on yeah. a neurological level, like you've had this tested or yeah, like, yeah, really? Okay, yeah. go there. <laughs> I, I want to hear all about this and I would like some of that to rub off. Please. I'm really connected to a lot of neuroscience and, yeah. and, um, because when I first uh, did some neurological testing, um, they found that my brain was so damaged that it looked like I'd been at war and uh, I had massive post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and what would that, what was that from? Um, life. And I've been like this since I was five years old. Gotcha. And so I, um, I've always had to overcome an immense amount of internal 
um, turmoil and struggle. Yeah. And um, I mean, there'd be times where my wife would like, when I was younger, find me in the fetal position just because I couldn't control the amount of data going into my brain. And um, so I've always like worked from the realization that if something good comes out of my life, it's not because I have it all together. It's, right. And uh, um, I think that probably on a human level and the most relational, I've been married 35 years. Yeah. You know, Kim and I have had the, a fantastic journey together. It's not been perfect. We've had really hard times. And um, I'm a really um, driven person. Mm. I don't sleep a lot. I work a lot. I play a lot. And uh, so that has an effect on the whole dynamic. And Kim is also like driven and she's in Malawi and Bangladesh and Thailand and Haiti. She's all over the world trying to end human suffering. And, you know, so we're a good marriage. Yeah, you know, yeah, together. yeah. Um, you know, when you parent your kids, you're always going to make mistakes. You know, yeah. we're in parent, we're in perfect people raising up in perfect humans. And, you know, I think on a ministry level, um, my I think my greatest, like, regrets have been that um, early on I tried so hard to have the approval of everyone in my life. And that approval caused me to make, I think, unhealthy relationships relational decisions. Like hmm. uh, I told my wife, we gave the wrong people way too much input and influence in our lives. And, and I think it hurt our kids as they grew up because we just let really toxic people be closer to us than we should have. And I thought that was what it looked like to be like Jesus is to allow all the toxic people to have unfeathered access to your life. And Wow. Yeah, so it was pretty, pretty dramatic. I mean, I had a twitch in my eye for probably five, six years just from the level of stress uh, when I was in my and 30s. Really? Uh, and what, what, like, were these people from your church? Yeah, they, of course. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've never known a more dangerous place. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and some of it I had to realize that, um, that you have to create healthy environments. And that's really how I ended up writing my first book, An Unstoppable Force, was realizing that, uh, that maybe the dominant role of leadership is to be an environmentalist and to create an environment of health and wholeness and and to not allow toxicity toxicity and and bitterness and anger and greed and pride to shape the culture all around you. Hmm. And that's a that's a good insight to learn early. It's hard because you know um, bitter people demand your time. Hmm. Broken people demand your time and then if you give them your time you're actually creating a culture of bitterness and brokenness. And you cannot you cannot feed on gratefulness and turn it to gratefulness. You have to starve on gratefulness. It's interesting, you know, and, and didn't see it coming. I tell the story of a couple in our church early on. Again, I was in my 30s as well. Let them get a little bit too close, poured myself into them. Long story short, they walked out the church, kind of snapped my heart. Mm. And for me, that really was the first time I sort of felt cynicism really starting to take root. Mm. Has that been a battle for you, cynicism at times in different seasons? Yeah, I had to battle back. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. Um, I, I, it's kind of odd. Like, um, like my wife, if you do interview her, she'll tell you, like, I don't know why, but I just don't. I'm not a person who struggles with bitterness. No, I'm not a person who struggles with cynicism. We've experienced an immense amount of betrayal. I mean, an unbelievable amount of betrayal in our lives. Um, and a lot of it is because I'm just inherently super trusting. Yeah. You know, and— um, and one of the, I saw this uh, sociological study that said that um, if you like, if you're always buying people meals, you bond to the people, but they don't bond to you. Really? So for like 20 years, I bought every single meal for every single person I ever ate with. 20 years, I never had a single meal bought for us. And no matter where we traveled in the world, we always bought every meal. And we we felt such deep loyalty to people. But interesting enough, when you give to people. You bond to them, but they don't bond to you. Did not know that. It's and it's an odd thing, and that's why, like, the process of serving actually creates loyalty. Hmm. And and so I realized one time my brother said, "Hey, Irwin, you're really loyal to your elders, and you're their friends, but they're not loyal to you. They're not your friends. You actually see this as a dual relationship, but it's not." And, and that's one of the things I had to like grapple with over the years is I'm so deeply loyal that I would, I would project loyalty. Yeah. And I think a lot of pastors 
have that tendency to do that at times. You know, that's a fascinating insight. So, and so I so that the pain of that was um, not cynicism. I wanted to run. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's it. We're gonna burn the ships and go. Or no, what? I just uh, like um, another one. I like those uh, psychological dynamics. Is that um, I have a high value for community, but if I feel like the community really doesn't want me. I um I bail. I just want to run for my life. I'm a runner, wow. which is crazy because I've been at the same community. I, I was going to say you're thirty in, years. Yeah, it's because I make decisions against my negative characteristics, <laughs> and because there's some attributes you have that are part of your essence, and some of them they need to become part of your structure. So let's say I'm um I'm highly adaptable. That's mm-hmm. a part of my essence. I don't have to. I don't have to like develop a structure for adaptability. Right. I'm highly adaptable. I had to develop a structure for punctuality, <laughs> and uh, but I had a value for it, so I had to develop a structure for it. I didn't. I. I. I don't have to develop a structure for um, innovation. Right. I just naturally. Naturally, think, you innovate. You know, I have to create a structure for um, consistency. And so, so I was going to go, look, the way you're designed, you need to know what, what is like natural to you and what you have to create structures for you. And um, so, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer. I've written like 10 books. Uh, deadlines are part of the structure for me. Yep. I love deadlines. Deadlines exhilarate me. And because uh, and, deadlines actually increase my productivity. Yes. But a person who's highly disciplined probably doesn't need deadlines. They create their own deadlines every single day. And they move forward. So I began to realizing I'm highly disciplined, but highly unstructured. And, and, and so that's the part of it. I always say, look, let's say you're an introvert, highly introverted, mm-hmm. but your, your job your, requires uh, relational interaction. So, okay, your natural in, uh, inherent essence isn't highly extroverted. I'm an introvert, extremely introverted. So I developed relational strategies. I know that I have to take a deep breath and go in and engage with people, make eye contact, talk to people, and move through the room and connect with as many people as possible. Then I step back out, take a deep breath, and I go back in. I create structures. And so people mostly think I'm an extrovert. Yeah. And, uh, but it's not because it's my inherent essence. It's because it's a, it's a structure based on a value. I love people and I care about people. So I want a structure that makes me good in human interaction. If we can go back to, um, you know, you bonded with your elders, but they didn't bond with you. Yeah. You bought all those meals for 20 years, but it wasn't really creating the loyalty mm-hmm. that you thought it was. How have you dealt with that since? Like, what's different than that first decade or whatever it was? Some of it for me was, um, I just thought it was like, this is just the way of Jesus, right? This is what, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I just give, I never receive, right? Did you know you weren't receiving? Um, no, no, because I, I love giving, uh-huh. I, you know, so I like, I was pretty fulfilled, you yeah, know? Yeah. And, um, but I did notice, like I started experimenting going, I wonder if anyone else will offer to pay for the meal. And I began realizing no one ever offered to pay for the so meal. So you held back just to, just as an just experiment? Yeah. Okay. And I began realizing I created a culture of receiving, of taking, not a culture of giving. I thought giving would create a culture of giving, but it doesn't. It's the most obscure thing and unusual. So thing. I'm, I'm like, usually the guy who buys too. So I'm like uh, uh, hyper interested in this. Yeah. What do you do now? Yeah, very, very different. Uh, and uh, one, I let other people who um, know how to do this better than me create that aspect of the culture. Hmm. Like really, uh, my son came back from New York after he was working with St. Laurent. He came back in the ministry and he walked into our church and said, okay, dad, every Sunday you feed 250 volunteers, but no one even brings you a bottle of water. Because do you realize what culture you've created? And I said, yeah, no, that's okay. Like uh, 20 years, um, whenever they would give me an office, I'd take the best office and I'd give it to all the secretaries. And so for 20, I never had an office. And I created that culture. So I'd walk, I'd do five services, drive 200 miles every Sunday to the different campuses. And no one would even think, A, to save me a parking spot. Right. Or right. to bring me a bottle of water. Nothing. I created that culture. I thought this is like being like Jesus, right? Right, <laughs> you know? right. And what's crazy is like when we Aaron goes, watch, let's stop feeding the volunteers. It created such an uproar. 
what do you mean you're not going to feed us anymore? Because <laughs> <laughs> see, Dad, you didn't create a culture of gratitude. You created a culture of entitlement. Wow. And, uh, and, and he would say, you have to let me let people serve you too. He goes, because it's not about you. It's about teaching people how to serve other people as they're serving Christ. It was the most difficult thing in the world. For six months, I had a guy driving me around. I did not want him to drive me around. I love driving. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but his life was a wreck. He was, mm-hmm. his, uh, his life was in devastation. And I watched in six months how his life was transformed, and he's now one of our leaders. And so I realized, oh, I'm not letting people drive me for me. <laughs> I'm letting them drive me for them. Uh, you know? And there's a difference. There is a difference. Yeah. You know, and my wife, it drives her crazy. She goes, we don't need this. I know we don't need this. They need this. And we have more people now that we're letting people serve our pastors, want to be pastors. They love serving. I mean, I fly in at three in the morning. I'm happy taking an Uber. I, I'm like, I'm as low maintenance as a human being comes. Yeah. But it's that, that guy who's willing to get up in the middle of the night, pick you up at three in the morning. That's the guy that year from now you're going to be able to trust with 200 people. Right. And I realized that's how we're finding the people who actually can be trusted with leadership. Because, see, what's crazy is I am the guy who's willing to show up at 3 in the morning to pick you up. <laughs> and I know that worked for me, but I didn't believe it would work for others. Mm. My, my brother gave me, like, this great insight one time because one of our church plant, one of our guys wanted to go plant in Mexico City. And I was so worried about him failing. And my brother goes, I thought you believed in failure. I go, I do. <laughs> no, you only believe in failure for you. <laughs> and you're going to rescue others. But you're trying to rescue everybody else. Wow, Erwin. And I said, you're right. And I said, Emerson, go, man. Risk it. Even if we fail, it didn't matter. Two months into his church plant, he broke a 1,000. <laughs> in Mexico City, in one of the most unreached areas in the whole city. And he'd been there for eight months, but he went public gatherings two months ago. And in two months, is that a 1,000? I'm going... If I had not allowed him to have the same privilege of failing, I would have stolen from him his success. What do you do for your volunteers? Do you, are they hungry? We don't feed them anymore. You don't feed them anymore? No, no, oh, we did that for 20 years. <laughs> How did you get over the, the it was rebellion? Tough. Yeah. No, we lost those volunteers. Really? Yeah. So you got now 250 whatever new ones. Yeah, and they're serving and they care and they're like, I want to feed them so bad. You know, but we do do we do a lot of things to appreciate them, yeah, and to love on them. They care. Like we bring our volunteer leaders to our home, and like we still twenty five years later, we still do staff meeting in my house. Ah, that's great. You, you know, I cook in the backyard. I cook for everyone. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll cram one hundred and fifty to two hundred volunteers all over our yard in the backyard, everywhere. Everybody just comes and we celebrate life together. So we do life together. Hmm. And, uh, and I love that, you know, but we take those moments, we make it really special, you know, for them and, uh, and it's special for us. And, and for me, it's very communal. Mosaic is so un-institutional. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, we really are like 25 years later, a community. We're a family. We do life together. We love doing life together. We play basketball together, go to the movies together. We travel the world together. And, um, one of our guys, he's uh, in real estate. His wife's a dentist. And um, I sent him a, a text. I said, um, I'm going to Asia next month. Do you want to come with me? And he doesn't even hardly respond. In 30 minutes, he already has his tickets. <laughs> he already called the office, set it all up. And like, and here's a business guy, like working like crazy, has kids, everything like that. And I just love that kind of culture where people like, hey, we just lean in. We want to be part of this. Uh, I think one uniqueness is that we don't hire from the outside. So every single person on our paid staff was a volunteer in our community beforehand. Cool. And we've never hired an outside person like that. And, and because of that, our volunteers see themselves as much as our paid staff as pastors and leaders in our community. Boy, that's a big culture shift. A lot of organizations wouldn't make it through that. Yeah. You— um, You've had, you know, your books have sold well. You speak all over the world. You have a church that has uh, a great ministry in Los Angeles and has been studied around the world by many leaders, including myself. Um, In the book, I talk about pride Mm -hmm. and the importance of guarding against it. 
Well, that comes in the form of narcissism, which I don't spend a lot of time on. But I think a lot of us struggle with pride. If it's pride is an obsession with self, insecurity sure. can cause you to obsess on yourself. Talk to us about your journey and how you check against pride and what that battle has been like for you. It's been interesting because, um, one, I, um, because of my psychology background, um, done a lot of studies on narcissism, um, high-functioning sociopaths. Oh, wow. Yeah. And uh, because we did an assessment years ago, and I found that most CEOs and most pastors of megachurches are basically what are are, um, they have a high pattern for narcissism and even functional sociopathic behavior. Wow. And, um, and I thought this was really fascinating. And we did a uh, study with a lot of our previous like interns and young emerging leaders. And across the board, they had high narcissistic personality structures. And um, it, there is a generational cultural dynamic that seems to breed narcissism. And I think we need to be really aware of it. Um, in the church. And, uh, um, and so I, I have become really aware of this pattern and it's dynamic in Christianity. So it's, it's rampant. It's rampant. No, uh, there is a reason why the church looks the way it does. And there's a reason why we have so much crash and burn. There's a reason why, um, we have like the cultural, um, dilemmas that we do as a faith. I just know that like it's it, pride is like one of those odd things because like you can't say you're not proud because then you're really proud. right because then you're, right you, you know you yeah, can't say you're humble because yeah. then you're so not. So tell me how you uh, tell me how you cultivate humility in yeah. your life, everyone. Uh, can, but can, but I ahead. do think there is like an interesting dynamic. Like um, you can know whether you have an inherent drive toward humility if you admire humble people. Hmm. Okay. I, say more. Yeah, because like. You know, when uh, when I was younger, like, the people that I aspired to be like were humble people. Hmm. And I thought, I don't know if I'm ever going to be humble, so I'm going to just admire humble people and aspire to be like them. Like and who, a, a relative or a, a janitor at you school? You don't usually know who they are, right? Yeah. You know, but, I mean, there are great leaders who, are, who have been truly humble, you know, yeah. I think in history and— um, you know, because humility isn't a a sense that you're nothing. I think it's it's really a proper self awareness. You know, and 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 I, I think humility is in leadership. It's best expressed by a willingness to def, uh, to decentralize power. And and so the more decisions you make, probably the less humility you have, because you believe you have to make those decisions. Wow. And the, the more decisions you empower the people to make, probably the higher your humility is because you actually believe other people can make better decisions than you. And so for me, it's a real pragmatic thing, you know? And I go, well, you know, maybe um, you can't ever know if you're humble. You just, you can know if you do humble things, hmm. you know? And uh, so years and years ago, I remember one time I didn't want to take out the garbage and I realized, oh, wow, it's okay with me if my wife takes out the garbage, but it's not okay if I take out the garbage. And so I thought, okay, the most humble thing I can do is take out the garbage. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so I, I, I just tried throughout my life to make concrete decisions going, oh, if it was a humble person, that's what they would do. Right, right. So <laughs> basically do what the humble person would yeah. do. And so, I'm going, go. so I have this idealistic uh, person in yeah. my mind. The humble, this is what the humble person would do. If I were actually humble, this is what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. And, uh, and I just go, I'm going to like follow your lead since it's not necessarily natural. And, um, but there's another part of you go, um, like I didn't grow up being told that I was awesome. Mm-hmm. I was, I grew up being told I was nothing. Wow. I was, I grew up being told I would never be anything. I would never accomplish anything that I was not gifted, that I did not. I mean, I, I was 12 years old. I was being, I was in a psychiatric chair. I was being tested to see if I was uh, mentally incapacitated or, or, um, um, inefficient. And, um, I was a straight D student first through 12th grade. I, um, you know, I know what it's like to be a 16th string wingback on a high school football team. Uh, I had no, uh, external factors that led me toward arrogance. <laughs> if anything, 
I had a huge internal narrative of massive insignificance. Hmm. And I'm still like in shock by my life. Uh, yeah, I would think so. <laughs> you know, um, I'm, I, me and my wife are like, what happened? <laughs> you know, yeah, we're, yeah, yeah. we're still yeah. like, my wife was an orphan. You know, she was a, abandoned oh, when she was eight years old uh, in a government project and lived in a foster home until she was 18. And, um, you know, we, we, we are not two people who went, oh, yeah, we were awesome. Like, we were just born with every advantage and everybody always applauded us. It wasn't like that at all. And, and it's kind of ironic because, like, um, it's kind of weird to say that, but, like, like, I'm in an endless number of conversations where people are asking me about whether I'm a genius. <laughs> and uh, and I'm, I laugh going, oh, that's how it works. Because if you don't give up, you eventually are seen as a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Just suck around this long. <laughs> you know, because if you, if, you, if you have perseverance, eventually it's seen as talent. Like hard work for me, like all my talent is a result of hard work. Yeah. I didn't have any, I wasn't prodigious. Mm. There are people who are. They can play the violin at eight. You, you know? Yeah, yeah. I could barely walk at eight. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? And so I didn't have any prodigious fact, you know, elements. So it was just hard work. And, um, but I do think that your capacity increases if you remain teachable. Mm. And, uh, and, and so I, I do now have a sense of unlimited capacity. I feel like I have um, the ability to continue growing until I die because I refuse to stop learning because I have a desperate need to learn. Mm-hmm. And so if, I, if, I, if humility is elusive, teachability is not. And so I want to be the most teachable person in the world. Like last week, I just started learning Portuguese. And so I'm, I've been working on the language. I mean, I started a few months ago because I started on Rosetta Stone. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then this last week, I got someone to start sending me phrases in Portuguese. And, you know, three years ago, I was speaking Spanish with a translator. Now I'm preaching across the world in Spanish fluently. And, and, and it's, see, it, it, it starts looking like genius, but it's actually not. It's only teachability. It's a desperate hunger to learn. That, to me, is the practical application of humility. The reason I want to learn other languages is because I believe those other cultures are something to teach me, hmm. that I'm, I'm incapable of accessing their genius without having some understanding of their language. You know, years ago when I went to Korea, I took months and months and months to learn enough to be able to speak in Korean, to be able to uh, begin my presentations in Korean. Do you know how much it means to people when you take the time to learn their language. Americans don't do that. Like Westerners don't do that. They think the world's supposed to learn English and meet us where we're at. You know, I mean, Spanish was my first language. English is what I learned here in the States. Hmm. And so when you talk about elusive things like humility, to me, I look at practical things like teachability. How much, how many people do you think you have nothing to learn from? Hmm. Or do you posture yourself where you have something to learn from everyone? You know, how many people do you think are of less value to you? Or do you treat everyone as if they have more value to you? So I'm going, so stop talking about the elusive things. Tell me how you treat the waitress at the restaurant. Tell me how you teach a cashier at the grocery store. That's really the practical expression of humility, right? I was at a game yesterday, pulling into the parking lot with this um, really amazing human being. And he said, oh man, I gotta go. Uh, I paid for the parking because we drove. He goes, oh, that's my attendant. That's the guy I always like uh, park with. I need to go give him some money. And I said, why? And he goes, because you taught me that. <laughs> and because when I go to games, I go to every single server. And I take money with me to tip every single server. And, and I've done that for years and years and years, whether they're the valet, or whether the guy in the corner at the door, or the person bring me food. And I make sure that no one tips them better than I do. That's awesome. You know, because I go... I have the capacity to create wealth. You know, you have a, a great book, didn't see it coming, and it's going to create more wealth for you. Mm. And, and properly so, because you're investing in people's lives because you've taken time to give them something that they need. And I see that as us, then now we have the privilege of dispersing that income to people yeah. who might be invisible and unseen by other people. That's beautiful. You know, my wife, Tony, and I, we always say, and I think we probably got this from Andy Stanley years ago, but like God surely didn't intend this solely for our benefit. Yeah. Right? 
how did you, growing up with that negative a view of yourself being foisted on mm-hmm. you, how did you overcome that? Or what, what's the journey been like? Well, obviously, a huge part of that is Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, 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 it's a pretty extraordinary thing when you hear the possibility that you're created by God <laughs> and that that means your life isn't arbitrary. Your existence isn't nihilistic, that your existence has intention. And it's, it, for me, it was one of the things going, if I, if, if I'm the only, if I'm the only material that explains me in the universe, I'm in trouble. Because I don't have enough material to be significant. Hmm. But if a part of the dynamic, a part of the formula of my existence is God's intention, all of a sudden the formula of who I am becomes exponentially greater. Hmm. Like if I'm created by God, then my intention is bigger than me. And that for me is really compelling. It's exciting. Like I'm going, oh, my life can actually matter because now my existence isn't measured by me. It's measured by God. Wow. And I didn't care about heaven. I was, I'm never worried about, I never worried about going to heaven. I didn't care about hell. I was too disconnected to even worry about hell. You know, I worried about a meaningless life of emptiness. And the fact that in Jesus, I had this promise that my life actually had intention and meaning and significance. That's what led me to faith. And, and I think that's what drove me going, I'm supposed to be proof that a person without talent can actually make a difference. Like that is what part of what drives me. Like a part of what drives me is I'm going to prove that you don't have to have talent or genius or ability or to accomplish meaningful things in the world. I want to be proof of that guy or that woman. It's incredible. Hey, I know you got a flight to catch. We got uh, dinner to grab, but I want to go back. Last question on the whole narcissistic pastor thing. <laughs> I can't just let that go. Or when that is, uh, you, you, can you give us a few indications because you do have a background, you've done some research in this. Like if you're looking in the mirror going, is this me? Like, okay, so if you want to be humble, adopt the habits of the humble. I actually talk about that in the book, which That's you awesome. haven't had a chance to read. Yet, I have not but, had a chance to read. But there are, there are habits of the humble that I have had to cultivate to guard against my pride. But what are some signs that you, uh, you know, and, and, and it's funny, I read on social today, it was Rich Birch who linked to uh, an article that said something like 34% of all pastors qualify as narcissists, like certifiable narcissists. Yeah. And and you say CEOs as well, so. Yeah, and narcissist is the healthy spectrum. Okay, what, and, where uh, does it go? Uh, what I would call high-functioning sociopaths, and then it gets worse. <laughs> you know, I mean, even what we read this past week about the Catholic Church, yeah. you know, um, you have to realize that it gets worse. Mm. When I first started interacting with the material on narcissism, that okay. Well, how do what, how, how do we deal with this? Uh, because the psychological structure is cultivated by the environment of our culture. So, can you can you give us a thumbnail definition of narcissist and sociopath, just so we know what we're talking about? Uh, yeah, I, I don't. I don't want to. Uh, I'm not going to give any technical terms. No, no. And uh, but let me just say, like a narcissist, let's say, would be. Uh, well, I can I can I can bring a couple of features together. Yeah, sure. You know. A high need for praise, like the world needs to be about them. A high view that there's no one in the world who can do it better than them. Hmm. And so like one assessment, I've known people that came out with perfect scores in every arena where they thought no one could be smarter than them. No one could be more gifted than them. No one could be more competent than them. And so a narcissist is usually a person who doesn't ask for help because they don't believe anyone can solve a problem they can't solve. Wow. So one of the challenges when you're working with a person who's narcissistic is that they'll destroy your organization because they don't know something can be solved because if they can't solve it, they don't believe anyone can solve it. <laughs> See, like, so when you're not a narcissist, you ask for help faster. So if you're listening, mm-hmm. if you never ask for help, you're probably a narcissist. Wow. So it's not um, even like I look at myself in the mirror for 10 hours a day. It's like, no, no, I it's never like ask that. for help. Because why would I ask Carrie? <laughs> 
Because <laughs> what does he know? All right, what does he know? He can't know more than me. And uh, narcissists um, displace responsibility. So a person who's narcissistic never takes, never feels, because I want to deal with their internal subjective um, expression. Yeah. If there's a failure, um, it's not theirs. So a narcissist mm. never fails. Oh, because in their mind, it was never their fault. It was someone else's fault, the organization's fault, your fault. So highly defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Never ask for help. If you confront them with a failure, um, you're attacking them and you don't have their well-being in mind. Right. And because you're trying to, you're trying to force responsibility of a failure that, I mean, I've talked to people who said, I've never failed. I've interviewed <laughs> people and who, um, from their perception, um, were not at fault for things that were in their arena of responsibility. So they're the people who will leave your staff because you didn't do for them what they needed done for their success. <laughs> a narcissist leaves your staff because you let them down. Wow. Because the organization didn't meet up to their standard because you didn't let them do what they needed to do. And, and so there's other dynamics. What's ironic though, a, nar- narciss- a narcissist is, um, from my perception, um, they're low risk. A narcissist can't afford to take big risks because it would violate their identity if they failed. Oh, okay. So they're playing it safe, they're cautious, and they stunt the growth of their organization. But they attach themselves to high-risk people because they take credit for the risk that's taken. Uh, They also interview better. They're more likely to be hired. Because if you interview me and I'm a narcissist, I know exactly how to say what you need to hear. Because you've done that your whole life? Uh, Because um, you're... You're so confident that you're the best for the job. <laughs> and if you interview a person who has like a high challenge, um, they take high responsibility. Um, if you ask them, have they ever failed? They can give you like way too many times. You're like, I don't know if I should hire this person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they failed way too much. You, you know, uh, a narcissist, when you ask them, share with me one time, one, one, um, one weakness in your life. They'll say something, you know, my greatest weakness is I care too much. <laughs> right. Right. You know, my greatest weakness is I take too much responsibility. Uh-huh. Like, their weakness is always a strength. Yep. Does that make sense? It totally does. So when you're listening to a person, when they turn their weakness into a humble brag, yeah. it's, um, they're a narcissist. Wow. And, um, you, you know, it's like— uh, You start to see it everywhere now with that definition. Does that make sense? Yep. You know, and, yeah. And, and so one of the great challenges is, like, I would always take responsibility— and they let me. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the hard right. thing is I feel the responsibility because I can see where I failed. Yeah. And uh, like I can see, like, when, when Mosaic, you know, Mosaic isn't massive. Sure. And I would always tell my staff, look, if we had a better senior pastor, we'd be much bigger. <laughs> like, I realize I'm the leadership ceiling here. <laughs> you know, I'm pretty clear yeah. about that. That, you know, if I can figure out how to solve some of my own leadership competency issues— We'll really like blow this thing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, but one of the great challenges we've had to work with is is the other. Uh, my wife was just talking to someone recently, and she asked them um, for their one success, one failure, and she said they went from success to success. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Honey, it's because that person actually can't perceive. They're not lying to you." That, mm-hmm. That's just terrifying. That's they really believe, right? Like, so it's not like you can see them lying because they're not lying to you. They don't see the world from their failure. They don't see the world from that, and uh, uh, from that vantage point. So they they don't take a lot of risks. They um, they they have they will have the danger of en- endangering the whole organization because they don't get help in time, right? And so you have to really monitor that, and you have to, um, and if you give them a, like a command or instruction, if you give them a project or a job. If it's verbal, they will turn it to whatever they want to do. Hmm. It has to be in writing so that you can actually point to what was agreed upon. And uh, because it's a more self-protective personality. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, yeah, it does. It does. And so that's a challenge, right? And that's, um, and you can see this on a large scale. Oh, yeah. Mega churches and, you know, um, one of the, like, ironically, one of the upsides, like, for a narcissistic pastor is he's going to surround himself with super high-talented people because he doesn't want to fail. Hmm. 
And so he, he'll go and recruit the best people from every church organization in the world to make sure that they succeed. And so there is like a benefit. So this is where I've made my shift. I've gone, okay, since we have, let's say, 38%, 40%. Yeah, whatever, leaders, whatever. The- so you can go, got to get rid of all the narcissists. Or you go, oh, well, God created them too. <laughs> right? Yeah. He, he created us with all of our junk, whatever we are, you know. And uh, maybe we're like psychotics or, or maybe you just struggle with depression or maybe you struggle with uh, such inferiority that, you know, you never achieve your full potential, whatever we're struggling with. God has a way of using each person within the structure that they have. You just have to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. And then you have to create relational structures that hold you accountable. I used to be in business, uh, well, worked in business projects with a friend. And he said to me, um, he was a multimillionaire, Canadian, yeah, um, super successful, brilliant. In one of our first meetings, he said, hey, I need you to know I'm a narcissist. Huh. Yeah. And he said, um, high functioning, you know, um, on the borderline. He goes, and because I'm such a high narcissist, I will take advantage of you without even knowing it. Wow. He was a believer. And so he had grappled with his So own tremendous self-awareness. Brilliant self-awareness. Yeah. And what, and I thought, he can't be a narcissist. He's the nicest guy in the world, right? Uh-huh. You know, I love this guy. Because he's, he's like, narcissists are so likable. They're, they really have so many beautiful characteristics. Hmm. And, and, uh, and as we did projects together, I would realize, oh, wow. He's taking, like, financial advantage of me. He just, like, took all, like, I'm losing everything in cool. this relationship. This, and I sat down one time and said, stop. He goes, what? I said, you're, you're, you've spun everything so that your company is taking advantage of my company and you're stealing from me. And he goes, I'm sorry, stop. And he stopped. No way. And I, and I realized, he said, I, I'm incapable of seeing the line of taking advantage of you. So if we're going to be friends, you have to have the courage to tell me to stop. Oh my goodness. Maybe the most self-aware, high-functioning person I've ever met with that kind of personality. And he's the one who actually turned me on some of the research he did on sociopaths. And I uh, and, uh, said, hey, these, by the way, we interview better than you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get every job we want. Wow. Yeah. And, so, yeah. And he's d- super successful. Yeah. So a sociopath is just somebody who uses all relationships to themselves. It's that's a lack of empathy. Study. Lack of empathy. So yeah. that's a difference. A yeah, narcissist I would say can have empathy? Yes, no. I think yeah. so. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I think a sociopath doesn't have empathy. Okay. That would be one of the, you know. And, and so you have to, it's like learned empathy. You have to go, hey, this is where you need to care. <laughs> right, right, right. But like yeah. there's a, like, a designation a person can be a narcissist with a God complex. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. which is like right on the borderline of a sociopath, right? You know, Man. it doesn't, I'm just going, uh, I, I don't know how we went there. I guess I didn't see this coming. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. There you go. It was, it was trick questions. Or when, no, I, maybe it's because I'm in LA. It was about pride and yeah. well, LA. Yeah, my and goodness. LA draws a lot of narcissistic personalities. So we yeah. deal with it at a really high level. Um, and you know, one of the problems is of course, here's a person so good looking, so intelligent, oh, yeah. so charismatic, so talented, and he's a narcissist, and all the data validates it. Right, 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 right. <laughs> and I'm going, dang it, if I looked like you and was as talented <laughs> you and until I would be a narcissist too. Absolutely. Wish, you know, and, uh, and yet you meet other people and you go, dang, this person is so attractive and so brilliant and so talented and so incredibly humble that you realize, oh, it's the container, it's the essence. Hmm. It's the, uh, all that awesomeness doesn't demand narcissism. So your investor friend, real or yeah. even the hypothetical case. Yeah. Self-aware. Mm-hmm. Just draw the line, call me out. Would you, if that, and that person isn't on your team, so to speak, but would you have someone like that on your team? I've had three or four people like that. Well, actually, I've yeah. had 13 to 15 people like that on my team over the years. Right. And three or four who are at the highest level. And and so they can actually contribute really well as long as they've got some self awareness. Yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. You have to work differently with them. Yeah, you, you know, it's a it's a different communication system, and I, that's why I go it, it, character. Like the, I think the best indicator of your character is who you long to become. Oh wow! And so it's like I can't help you become anything you don't long to become. 
And a narcissist would want to become just what? More powerful, more famous? No, I had one person when they took this uh, really extensive assessment, they texted me and said, is this my destiny or can I be something else? And I said, you've already begun to change just by sending me this text. The moment you desire to be more, you begin to change. So the desire toward humility, adopting the habits of the humble, self-awareness, getting out. One of the challenges when that person left staff later, they said, I was a better person when I was with you. Because like the pendulum, their, their compass always moves back to their structure. Wow. And so you have to have like internal structures that help you deal with that in your life. And I think that's why sometimes marriage helps a person who's narcissistic. Because <laughs> you, uh, if you have two people who marry each other who are both narcissistic, one of them is going to get the worst to play in that. If the world's supposed to revolve around you and if you're never wrong. Hmm. And, you know, and if you don't take input. And so it's like. How fragile you are in taking critique will help you understand the spectrum of narcissism. So the more fragility you have around the accepting criticism, the more narcissistic you are. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So your ability to take criticism will help you move away from that spectrum. And, you know, I'm not a, I, I'm a practical expert, not, yeah. not a, 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 re, a theoretical expert. You know. um, no, but this is this is incredibly refreshing and helpful. And uh, Erwin, uh, anything else you want to say before we wrap up today? I mean, I don't want to leave it on the narcissist. You know what I mean? Yeah, we spent so much time talking about know. this. Carrie, no, but you know what? Go here. Uh, how often does this happen? Yeah. No, I, I don't. I don't have a lot of conversations around it. I always find it. Well, I always, I do find it fascinating. And when I read that, it was an, Rich didn't write it, but when he linked to it, I'm like, whoa, that is, that is serious. And it does explain a lot of what we see, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when the disciples were sitting around the table with Jesus and he said, when are you going to betray me? Yeah. Uh, the non-narcissist says, Lord, is it me? Right. The narcissist said, it isn't me. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Well, maybe we'll leave it there. We'll pick up on a happier note next time. Congratulations on your book. Hey, thank you. Thank you very um, much. You know, I I think it's really important. um, Lenses is what you're giving people. Yeah. You know, because if it's the unexpected, um, oh, you asked me at the beginning, what's the difference between preparation and planning? Yes, let's go there. Your book is about preparation Mm. and not planning. Yes. It's not seven steps on how to avoid the unknowable. It's a posture in which to live your life so that you can deal with the unexpected. That's a very good description, you know, because it really is sort of, you know, 20 years of learning and observation, maybe 30, I don't know, a lot. And in a lot of the growth in the journey, um, because I saw to some extent or another, all of these things welling up inside. And I think it seems from the couple thousand people who've read the book so far on pre-release, I'm not alone. So, uh, this has been helpful. Thanks for being so honest. Thanks for being so open and so vulnerable. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it as always. Hey, thank you so much, Kerry. Thanks, Erwin. All right. God bless. Well, thanks again to Erwin for being so open, so vulnerable, and so candid. And yeah, you know, we all get surprised by leadership. Hey, if you enjoyed that episode, you can get everything we talked about and more in the show notes. You can go to kerrynewhoff.com slash episode 212 or simply Google Irwin's name and my name or an approximation of my name and you will find the show notes. Uh, you can also go to leadlikeneverbefore.com. That'll take you directly to my site. And if you enjoyed that interview and you want to hear more, uh, this is the second time I've had Irwin on and we went in a whole other direction last time. You can uh, just, and we'll, again, link to this in the show notes, but you can find episode 163 of this podcast. And Erwin talks about his cancer in that one, tackling your fears and dealing with so many other things that leaders struggle with. Hey, once again, it is released week for my brand new book. And of all the things I've written, this is my fourth book. This is the one I'm probably the most excited about because I think this is the book that has the potential to keep you in leadership and in life, fully engaged, fully alive over the long haul. Because you know what? It's, it's, it's those little things that end up becoming big things like cynicism and pride and irrelevance and that emptiness you get after you've been successful that, that takes so many leaders under and cap our potential. My deep hope that that wouldn't be you plain and simple. So uh, I want to thank everybody who's given early reviews on Amazon. If you have read it, uh, just head on over there, leave a rating and review. 
that would so be appreciated. And if you haven't picked up your book yet, uh, well, every link, including bulk orders, there are a lot of people who uh, are wanting to run groups of leaders, maybe even their whole church. Actually, I've heard several times through the book. Uh, you can get that information too at didn'tseeitcomingbook.com. Hey, tomorrow we're back with a fresh episode. Uh, I'm going to be sitting down with Levi and Jenny Lusco and talking about not only the death of their daughter, a, a story that they told uh, through Levi's book, Through the Eyes of a Lion, but some of the other things that they just didn't see coming in life and in leadership. So here's an excerpt of that conversation. Me trying to come to terms with the most difficult person that I lead, which is no one on my staff, but it's me. And leading myself, managing myself, emotional behavior, you know, dealing with bad moods, uh, you know, having, learning how to have good, bad days and ha having the greatest day, but not letting that affect the way I treat people, my disposition, um, you know, and just knowing how much I have the capacity to set the, the pace positively or negatively for a meeting for our team, for morale, et cetera. So that's tomorrow. Once again, celebrating launch week for Didn't See It Coming. Thanks so much for listening, guys. I love being able to do this with you. You are so encouraging. Thank you for ratings, reviews, uh, for all your feedback on social. And we're back tomorrow with a fresh episode as uh, we continue this week. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.